Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. I hope all is well, and I hope everybody is enjoying the Halloween season. Uh, This time last year, we didn't get to do really anything with the kids, and nothing that we normally would do this time of year, because we were spending every freaking free moment we had just driving back and forth up and down 81, and it's been really nice being in a house and with the family all back together and getting to go do stuff it's it's been a nice change it's weird to think how different this october has been compared to our last october and i'm really enjoying the change it's been nice and in the spirit of the season i'd like to talk to you today about somebody from our country's history that a lot of people are not aware of now I remember reading a story about this guy, I think I was still in high school, but it's been a long time ago, but you just don't hear this guy's name, even with all the uh, all the true crime, and particularly this time of year where they're running documentaries about serial killers and strange murders and things going on, you just really don't hear a lot about this guy. Now, in the last couple of years, I am seeing his name a little bit more and more. And I've got a theory as to why you don't hear much about him, because the stories about him should put him at the top of the list for we're really worldwide serial killers, much less just America, because a lot of stories attribute about 200 murders to this particular individual. But like I say, he just he doesn't get mentioned a whole lot. And like I say, there's a reason that I think that's true, or actually I know that it's true. But we'll discuss that at the end because I don't want to give the story away just yet. Uh, but the gentleman I'm speaking of was named Herman Webster Mudgett. And isn't that just a perfect name? Uh, he was born on May 16, 1861 in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. He was the third son of Levi Mudgett, and his mother was named Theogate Page Price. Now, his father, Levi, was a local businessman, and the biographies that I read about this guy sort of suggested that the family was not rich, but sort of upper middle class. He came from a pretty respectable family, and now a lot of times with most murderers and serial killers, it was often stated that his father was definitely an alcoholic and was probably abusive, but it seemed like he had a relatively normal family life growing up. Herman was very intelligent. He did very well in school. Um, It actually made him the butt of some bullying. And in fact, there was one instance that was, and who knows if this stuff is apocryphal going back that far, but, but it's reported that his classmates made him stand in the corner and the, the school had a skeleton I assume it was a science class, but they made him put the skeleton's hands over his face and it was meant to scare him. But some of his statements leading up to his execution, Herman said that he actually felt very calm with the skeleton there. And it sort of kickstarted an interest in anatomy and studying the skeleton. In fact, after that, he began to, if he would find a dead animal, he would dissect it. It was kind of a hobby that he had. Herman graduated from high school at the age of 16. He was attending the Gilmanton Academy. And after he graduated high school, he married a Clara Loverling, and they had one son. He was 17 at the time that he was married. Uh, He became a CPA and worked for a while. And oddly enough, I don't know why this strikes me as odd, but it just doesn't seem like the type of job that an individual like this would do. I don't know how he made it all the way down to Florida, but he worked for a little while as the city manager in Orlando, Florida. 
Now, in 1882, now, like I said, he was very intelligent and very interested in anatomy and studying skeletons. He actually enrolled in the University of Michigan in their medical department. Now, while Herman was attending college, he found a couple of interesting ways to earn money for him and his family. Uh, one of the things he would do is he started robbing graves to sell the corpses to medical schools. Uh, as far as I know, he never sold any to the University of Michigan. That would have been a little bit bold. Another thing he would do is somehow or another, he figured out a way he could get his hands on freshly deceased corpses. And he, on several occasions, somehow managed to take out life insurance policies on people. And then he would stage these corpses where it looked like an accident or a suicide. And he was defrauding insurance companies. I'm not sure how that works in the mid 1800s. How can you get an insurance policy on just some random person? And then they, oh, here's a corpse. I bet I don't understand how he was pulling that off. But apparently he did that several times to earn money. Uh, That was kind of his first foray into the world of crime. Now, I was recently reading an article about grave robbing in London or England at about the same period, and it wasn't actually a crime to dig a corpse up and sell it to a, a medical school because the laws in England did not consider human remains property. So you weren't actually stealing anything. You could dig up as many as you wanted. And even if the cops were standing there watching you, there wasn't really anything they could do because you were not technically committing a crime. Now, I don't know if that's the same in America. It just seems to me that grave robbing would be a crime no matter what they considered the corpse. But but I've mentioned this a couple of times through different stories, man. They used to just had an odd mentality toward dead bodies. It's they just kind of viewed them as trash. You know, it was just, that's remains. Who the hell wants that? Who cares? But at any rate, that was one of the things that Herman would do during college to make some money. Now he graduated in 1884. Uh, To my knowledge, I don't think he ever practiced as an actual physician, even though he had graduated from medical school. And now he did work as a pharmacist in several places, but I never saw anything that ever said that he ever was actually a medical doctor. Uh, But he moved with his family to Moores, Moores, New York. I'm not sure how that's pronounced. It's M-O-O-E-R-S. And he worked as a pharmacist there for a short time. Now, while he was there, a little boy went missing. And there were rumors going around that he had been seen with this missing boy sometime before he disappeared, and eventually they found the body. Now, he was never charged with anything. There was no investigation opened on him, but he was questioned about these rumors that he had been seen with this missing child. Now, again, nothing ever came of that, and his family, very shortly after that, moved to Philadelphia, where he, again, took a job as a pharmacist. After he'd been a pharmacist at that in Philadelphia for a little while, um, a couple of people died from taking medications that were sold out of that pharmacy. Now, at this point, there there was an investigation. He was never actually formally charged with anything because pretty much as soon as he started getting questions about these people that had passed away taking these medications, he moved to Chicago. Now, he did not take his wife or his son with him. He just left. And it's at this point when he moved to Chicago, he wanted to try to stay away from any lingering questions from law enforcement. And he changed his name to the name that you were probably most familiar with. Um, Again, if you had heard this, 
Uh, he changed his name to Henry Howard Holmes. And if you've seen any documentaries on this individual, they would just called him H.H. Holmes. And it was during H.H. Holmes' time in Chicago that the period of his life that he is most famous for took place. Now, in 1886, he remarried, although remarried isn't quite the right word because he never actually divorced Clara Loverling. Um, a couple of years after he got married to, <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, Myrta Belknap, he did actually petition to divorce Clara. Uh, he did this in Illinois. Clara was on the East Coast. There's no record that she was ever made aware that he had filed for divorce. Um, the case was eventually just thrown out because it never went anywhere. Again, apparently he didn't bother to try to tell his first wife that he was going to divorce her. Uh, he was already remarried, which wasn't legal because he was legally married to Clara. But eventually he just kind of forgot about the whole thing and just went on with life because obviously he's already proven he's not too concerned with morality. But in Chicago, he again worked as a pharmacist. He worked at a pharmacy that was owned by an Elizabeth Holton. And eventually, he purchased a pharmacy from Miss Holton. Now, it's rumored that he may have murdered her to take over. Uh, but that turns out that that's just kind of a myth that's grown up around him. Um, the biggest reason we know this is true is that he was executed in 1886 and Miss Holton lived into the 1900s. So she outlived him by about 20 years. So obviously he didn't kill her to get the pharmacy. He did, in fact, purchase it from her. But the pharmacy did pretty well. In 1887, H.H. H. Holmes purchased a vacant lot across the street from his pharmacy. And on that vacant lot, he built a mixed residential and retail space building. Now, the building that he put on that empty lot was, it's a lot like a We've all seen buildings like this in, in towns and cities. The The ground floor is retail spaces. And in fact, one of the retail spaces on that floor, he built a new pharmacy for himself. Uh, but above was uh, apartments or, or small rooms that people could, could rent. Now, H.H. H. Holmes lived in what became known as the Castle in Chicago until 1894, when he again picked up and fled. Uh, he was under investigation for arson. Apparently, he had purchased a, a warehouse in Chicago and had tried to burn it down for the insurance money. And the insurance company got suspicious and was starting to investigate him for that. So he packed up and he left and he actually wound up in Fort Worth, Texas. Now, in 1894, he's arrested for fraud and he spends about six months in prison. And while he is in prison, he meets a man named Marion Hedgepath and they become friends. Now, as his time to get out of prison is getting close, he hatches a plan where he is going to take out an insurance policy, this time on himself. He was going to fake his death, and Marion Hedgepath was going to be the beneficiary of this life insurance policy. Now, he went through with everything, but the insurance company was suspicious, and I don't know exactly what he did to try to fake his death. I never saw that documented in any of the articles I read. But the insurance company got suspicious and refused to pay. Uh, this would be a minor blip on his radar, at, except for the fact that Marion Hedgepath was not happy about the fact that he didn't get the $500 that he was supposed to get for helping in this plan. And he started talking to the authorities because he was at that point, he was saying, hey, maybe if I rat this guy out, I can get my sentence reduced. So at this point in his life, H.H. H. Holmes, the, the police don't have any 
definite evidence on him about any missing people or any of this insurance fraud or all this other stuff he'd been involved in. But law enforcement was starting to pay attention to him and starting to try to keep track of where he was going and what he was doing. While all this was going on, H.H. Holmes hatched another plan, and he was going to do the defraud insurance again, and he enlisted the help of a Benjamin Pettizel, which was sort of a on-again, off-again partner in crime. Uh, he had worked with him in Chicago, and they had dealings off and on through the years. But he was going to have Benjamin Pettizel was going to move to a town, sort of himself in introduce himself around town as an inventor and he was going to rent a warehouse space and then H.H. Holmes was supposed to secure a cadaver that looked physically similar to Mr. Pettizel and they were going to fake a laboratory explosion and defraud the insurance company. Well, while Mr. Pettizel was out sort of establishing this false identity, H.H. Holmes either decided, or probably this was the plan all along, that it would be much simpler and there'd be much less chance of the insurance company refusing to pay if he just actually murdered Mr. Pettizel, and then they'd have the actual body and that would get the insurance company to pay off. Uh, Pettizel was married and had five children, just to give you an idea of how cold-blooded H.H. Holmes actually was when it came to these things. And of course, the wife and children were not with Mr. Pettizel while he was setting up this false identity. They were living away in another city. But when the time came and everything was ready, H.H. Holmes murdered Mr. Pettizel, again, a longtime compatriot, and turned in the insurance claim. Uh, the insurance company did pay off. Now, H.H. Holmes was telling Pettizel's wife that after they faked his death, Pettizel went across to Europe and was waiting in London for the heat to die down. H.H. Holmes actually started traveling around with Mrs. Pettizel. Um, he somehow talked her into letting him take guardianship of the children. I think two of them, they may have been old enough to be off on their own, but it said specifically that the two youngest daughters and the youngest son actually spent a few months with, with Mr. Holmes until he decided that they were probably loose ends in all of this, and he murdered Mrs. Pettizel and the three children. The two daughters, he actually, at the time, was in Toronto, Canada, and he was renting a home, and they actually recovered those bodies once he was arrested and the investigation was ongoing. But he suffocated the two girls, and he buried them in the basement. Uh, the boy, they never found his remains, uh, but he disappeared too. It's just assumed that, of course, he, he murdered the boy as well. But in November of 1894, the police finally caught up to him. It was actually detectives from the uh, Pinkerton Detective Agency that caught up with him. Uh, if you've ever watched a Western, they usually talk about the Pinkerton Detective Agency. But, but he was arrested in Boston on an outstanding warrant for stealing a horse. It's hard to believe all the stuff this guy does, and that's what gets him arrested in the end. Uh, but once he's taken into custody, H.H. Um, H. Holmes, he had kind of an odd attitude toward being charged with murder and, and being held in custody. Uh, he was very at ease. He was very comfortable. Um, he actually was paid $7,500 by a local newspaper uh, for the exclusive rights to his confession. And the confession that he wrote, he actually confessed to killing 27 people um, and various other acts of arson and insurance fraud and all manner of things. 
But it was during this time, while he was in prison awaiting trial for murder, that authorities started to look into his activities in Chicago. And again, if, if you've seen a documentary about H.H. H. Holmes or if you've read any of the stories, um, the things that were going on at his building in Chicago, the, the castle, is probably what the story's going to focus on. John Pulitzer's newspaper uh, printed several stories. Uh, there was a, actually drawings of the second story of this building. And the drawings were, it was just like a warren of all these different rooms. And it wasn't laid out like your typical apartment complex. It's, it said that there was over a hundred rooms and it was just almost like the uh, Winchester mystery house. It's like, it was specifically designed to be confusing, to be more like a maze than, than an apartment complex. There were supposedly trap doors that led shoots down to the basement and there were rooms that he could seal off completely and people would just eventually suffocate from lack of oxygen. There were rooms that had gas lines running to them that he could turn on at will and asphyxiate people. And in the basement, supposedly he had a crematorium set up. He had uh, dissection tables. He had vats of acid where he could dispose of bodies. And the stories that were coming out in the paper, you know, some people were estimating that he had killed over 200 people in this, and they started calling it the murder castle. And it was assumed that he had designed this not only just for his own edification, but also uh, there was a big, like a World's Fair. They didn't call it the World's Fair, but there was a big convention in Chicago in 1890, and you had a lot of single people, particularly single women, coming into the city to work that, and it was assumed that he was luring women to this apartment, you know, with the promise of, you know, I've got a, a nice, cheap place for you to stay while you're here in town. And that just fed him a pretty steady stream of victims that he could either sell to medical colleges or just just kill and, and dispose of on a whim. But despite all of the stories and all the crimes he'd committed all through his life, uh, he was only convicted of murdering Benjamin Pettizel and the three children. And on May the 7th, 1896, he was hanged. When the hanging took place, um, his neck did not break when they dropped the trap door. And witnesses said that he stayed alive for about 15 minutes until he finally suffocated and was pronounced dead. Uh, one of the things that he did request after his death, um, he did not want to be buried in a normal manner. He wanted to be buried at a depth of 10 feet, and he requested that his coffin be sealed in concrete. Uh, this probably because he had been a grave robber for all those years and he didn't want the same thing happening to him, which is a little bit ironic, but seems like that would be kind of a fitting end if he'd wound up as a skeleton at a medical medical school. But it kind of begs the question, if he killed 200 people, why is he not top of the list on American serial killers? And the reason for that is, you know, despite the fact that this was not a good guy and he did murder some people, a lot of the stuff that gets that was getting spread in the paper was just complete fabrication. Uh, the murder castle, you know, the stories are that, you know, it was just a maze and he had all these traps and you, know, you had stairways that would go nowhere and windowless rooms that, you know, there's only one way out and the locks are on the outside. All of that is just complete fabrication. The, the irony that most of these stories were coming out in Pulitzer's paper you know, the the prize that they give out for journalistic excellence, that he was just making crap up. I mean, just out of whole cloth. 
Nothing that they put in these papers about this building was even remotely true. They kept talking about the third floor. You know, they were all these different stories. Now, he did start to put a third floor on the building to make it into a hotel. That was never completed. It was never open for business. Nobody ever lived in the third story of that building. It was storefronts on the bottom and like eight one-bedroom apartments on the second floor. That's it. This, you know, hundreds of rooms with trap doors. Like I say, that was just made up completely out of whole cloth just because that would sell a few papers. A lot of the stories suggest that he had purpose-built this hotel specifically to lure in victims from the World's Fair that was going to be coming. That was not announced until 1889. They didn't know that that was coming to Chicago. He started building this building in 1887. And as far as having gas lines and all these traps run to these different rooms, you know, how would you, you know, it's not like he was out there with a hammer and a framing square building this himself. He was having it built by contractors. That would seem to be a little bit hard to cover up. And, you know, your contractor comes to you and says, you know, hey, the blueprints say you want untapped gas lines run into all the bedrooms. That's that's not really up to code. You, you can't look at the guy and tell him, hey, won't you mind your own business, buddy? There's going to be questions about stuff like that. You know, the, Again, this is just sensationalism on the part of these Chicago newspapers, which kind of makes me wonder, has there ever been a time in this country where the news media hasn't been like just populated completely with just complete scumbags that'll just tell you whatever they think will make make you purchase a newspaper or tune into the nightly news. I'm starting to think I was a little naive in my assumption that there was a time that the media did what the media is supposed to do. But no matter what all the crazy stories say or any of the myths that have grown up around H.H. Holmes. Now, again, this was not a good guy. I mean, he did not care about people. He was he was just out to make money. But most serious investigations into into his life of crime seem to suggest that he might have murdered nine people. You know, that's a far cry from the 200 that gets hung on him a lot. And I don't consider him a serial killer either. Uh, to me, a serial killer is somebody, you know, the killing is what their purpose is. You know, it's it's a it's a means unto itself. H.H. Uh, Holmes certainly had no compunction about killing people, but he was either doing it to cover his tracks or to try to make money. And you know, he was not just wanting to murder people. It was it was business for him. Well, I just got some kind of notica- notification on my computer. I wonder if that'll come up on the audio. Well, we'll find out when I edit. But like I say, I really, I don't consider him a serial killer. Uh, that's, that's not, the killing was not why he was doing it. Like I say, he was trying to cover his tracks or to make a quick buck. And not that that really makes it any better, but I don't, first of all, it's more, he's more urban myth than actual historical figure in this country. And and again, I mean, mostly he just, mostly what he did was fraud and arson. And he just, he was a con man. Uh, he seemed to be a pretty good con man, uh, at least for a while. He certainly managed to hoodwink a lot of people, but but in the end, he did get caught. And it was you know, just the silly stuff he was doing to try to make a quick dollar. It wasn't the murders. But all the rest of the stories you hear about him, just pure works of fiction. I'm starting to think I need to rename this show to Everything You Know Is a Lie. You know, Maybe someday we'll get a story where the the story that you've been told all your life is pretty close to what actually happened. Uh, might be the next episode because I've got another 
whack job to tell you about. And again, it's somebody that doesn't seem to get a lot of lot of press, which strikes me as kind of weird in this true crime obsessed period we're going through. But but that's going to be the next episode, and I hope to have that to you here in just a just a few days instead of the. Uh, two weeks or so that I've been doing. I am going to do better about that, though. I need to get back on track and get more in a habit of getting some episodes out on a better schedule. But as for right now, ladies and gentlemen, that is all I've got for you today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, if you did, I would certainly appreciate a like and please rate the show for me. And if you'd like to leave me a message, you can do so at freshfrozensoutherner at gmail.com or you can go to the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of the Halloween month. Again, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will talk to you again very soon. Thank you very much.